please keep your Bibles open with me. First John chapter 5. Uh, I, I can't tell you how excited I am to preach um, because uh, when, I was, when I was preaching in India, I had an interpreter, so I had to do one sentence at a time. And if anybody knows me, that's like torture uh, because I get excited, and it's a lot of fun, and I had to just stay rooted, and I had to make sure that my interpreter could hear me, so I feel like I'm unchained, if you will. And uh, I'm a little excited to bring the Word of God, to talk about the Word of God together, to see what God has for us. And to share you a little bit about my trip, uh, while I was there, I was, I was teaching. Uh, it ended up being a bigger crowd than they ever had. We had about 2,000 leaders from all over India that gathered together. Uh, some people might know some of the speakers. Uh, I don't know if you know Stuart and Jill Briscoe were there. I had the opportunity of traveling and fellowshipping with them. Just amazing people to learn from. Uh, great, amazing wisdom. Uh, I also got to spend some time with T.V. Thomas. T.V. Thomas is an international renowned uh, evangelist. And uh, just got to learn from some of these great speakers and to, to share life with them, to fellowship together. And while I was there, I not only spoke, I wanted to get to know just what God was doing in the lives of ordinary people. So I set up a series of interviews. And uh, I took a young man with me who was from my church in Massachusetts, uh, a Russian young man named Eugene. And Eugene brought his GoPro camera, set it up, and we just did interviews of people and how they came to know the Lord. Many of them came from all different kinds of backgrounds. I mean, we had people from Hindu backgrounds. We had people from Sikh backgrounds, Buddhist backgrounds. It was just incredible to hear their stories. And I asked him a few questions, such as, how did you come to know the Lord? Uh, that was my first question. The second question was this, what was it about Jesus that made, you, made him appealing to you? Uh, and, and many of us can't fathom that. I mean, many of us in this room, not all, but many of us have grown up within church, and the idea of not being around church or at least being familiar with it is, is way out. And, but these are people that have never even heard of it, have nothing to, to do with it uh, originally until God really spoke into their life. And then lastly, I asked them, a last question was, um, how, do I, uh, or how do you define the gospel? What is it? It was fascinating to hear their answers and to see them and, and to get to know them and, and ask them questions and see their lives. And, and, and just looking at them, it made me start to wonder as I looked at them and, and looked at the people around and I said, well, how can you tell if someone is a Christian? I mean, what are the signs in your culture that, that notice, that you can notice? What is it that they do or not do? And, and I asked myself that about our own culture. In our culture, how do you tell if someone is a Christian or not? I mean, what is it? If I were to ask you to, to write down a test... If someone is a Christian or not, what would the test consist of in your mind? Do they go to church? Maybe how they dress? Maybe do they read the Bible? Maybe, I mean, what, what, are, what are the criteria that you would put in your mind of whether or not someone was a Christian? And I'm not saying if they say they're a Christian or not, because in our world today, a lot of people say that. They say that they're a Christian, but the reality is, is that they're not, because their life doesn't reflect that uh, proclamation or that label. And I, and I think in our day, in, in our era, there was a very similar, I mean, we, we have that understanding now of, of, we understand that there are people that say they're Christians and they're really not. And it happened in John's day too. John, when he wrote this, this, um, this wonderful, wonderful book, he was writing to a group of people who were confused because there were people that were coming in saying they were followers of Jesus, but whose lives and whose teachings contradicted what it meant to be a true follower of Jesus. So he's writing to this church, and he wants to assure them of what the signs of salvation look like. Here's what salvation looks like. Here are the signs that you need to look for. Here is the test that you need to put out 
and shows whether or not someone is a Christian. And many of them were even doubting, am I a Christian or am I not? And he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know. I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt if you're a Christian or not. But I also want you to know and show clearly if you think you're a Christian but you're really not, you need to know that because you're in the danger zone. Because there are many people, just as Jesus said, who will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do that? And he says, behold, I never knew you. So they, they, they might have had the miracles, but they didn't have the Messiah. They had missed the message. So he's showing us that there is a message that he wants us to understand. He, he brings us back to the person of who Jesus is. And what do we need to be, believe about Jesus? That he came and he lived and he died? What is it that we need to believe as Christians? I mean, when I was talking with some of these Hindu background believers, and, and many of them had come from very uneducated background, and I said, what was it about Jesus? What do you believe? What is the gospel? They said that he is the only God. There is no other God. I said, well, that's true, because in their culture, there are 335 million gods. For, that's a big step. But what else do you have to believe? What does the scripture say? What the gospel is, and what does it mean for us? That's what we're going to be looking at today. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, we ask you to speak to us today. Show us who you are. Open your word to our heart and open our heart to your word that we might truly begin to comprehend who you are, that we might go forth changed. Your name might receive glory. We might increase in wondrous joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So stay with me in this text. Now, John wants us to know where we stand with Jesus Christ. And he shows that our salvation is seen, first of all, through an amazing truth. Now, truth is a a very rare thing today. People talk a lot about truth, but the reality is is that people, when they mean truth, it's really not saying what is objectively true, it's what they want to be true. There's a subjective nature to it, which reminds me of the words of Pilate uh, with Jesus when he said, what is truth? I mean, there's that question today, what is true? Because really, as Alexander Schultz-Nietzsche said, he said, one word of truth outweighs the whole world. Because truth is transformative. And there are certain truths that that don't affect us in great ways, but there are other truths that have a dramatic effect on us. And John is showing us there is an amazing truth for us to behold. He starts off in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. He says the first step in this truth, and I want you to understand, is this. That this truth can only be seen through the new birth we experience. The new birth we experience. It all comes back to that. If you want to know who is a Christian and who is not, you have to be born again. Which literally means born from above. If you are not born again and born from above, you are not a Christian. You cannot be a Christian because your parents were or that was the culture you were raised in. You cannot be a Christian just because you attend church or because you click your Facebook profile or you throw out verses for everyone to see on Instagram. That does not make you a Christian. It is not your dress. It is not what laws you follow. It is not the sacrifices that you do or do not do. It's not about giving money to God. These do not make you a Christian. They are signs or results of your salvation. The only way that you can truly be a Christian is to be born from above. You are regenerated. You are made new. You become a new creation, a new creature. And it's a birth that we experience. That's what Jesus told us, is that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he has been born again. 
And that's what John is saying. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, what do you believe? Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ is, means the anointed one. And it, he is the anointed one of God, the Savior of the world. He is different than any other person who has ever lived. When I was in India, I had to, I'm speaking to the, the, the audience, very large audience, and I had to talk about gurus. Uh, gurus are something that are very prevalent within the Indian culture. And uh, one man gave me a little bit of a tip. He said, he goes, here's the thing about a guru. A guru lived, a guru taught, and a guru died. He says, Jesus could be a guru. Jesus lived, he taught, and he died. He said, but what makes him different than the gurus is that there's another step right after that. He rose again. See, without the resurrection, there is nothing We have nothing without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the linchpin. It is the exclamation point on everything else that God said and did within his word. We cannot proclaim the crucifixion without the resurrection. If it's just the crucifixion, he's a good man that died. But he's the resurrection. They're saying that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the the sole anointed one of God that has been prophesied since the foundation of the world, that is shown throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures, that there was a foreshadowing that was coming of who he is and what he was to be like and what he was to do. We must believe that he is the one who came, he lived a sinless life, He died, he was buried, and he rose again. These are the points that are non-negotiable within our understanding of who Jesus is. And that that shows us this. we have this new birth we experience when we trust in him. But it is also, as we've just seen, it is a belief we espouse. It is a belief we espouse. A.W. Tozer, uh, the great Christian Missionary Alliance pastor who lived in Chicago, lived from 1897 and died in 1963, He once said this, and the quote's not on the board, but he said, what I believe about God is the most important thing about me. What I believe about God is the most important thing about me. It's not what you believe about anything else. You can have all your political opinions. You can have all of the different viewpoints of of, uh, who the best sports team is or, you know, who's better, the Chicago Cubs or that other team. Um, You can have any of those beliefs, but those don't matter ultimately. It's what do you believe about Jesus? That's why, that's why Jesus appears before every one of us and he asks us the exact same question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that he is? I mean, ultimately, you can't, you can't talk about what your parents believed. You can't talk about what the scholars say. You can't talk about what the National Geographic special says or what you saw on Netflix. You have to say and answer that question yourself individually. Who do you say I am? And it's also been given that there's four options. He's either the Lord, he's a complete lunatic. He's a complete liar. Uh, See, he's Lord, lunatic, liar, or he could even be, last of all, a legend. Is he just a legend? Who is he? He doesn't seem to give us any other option. He asks us that question. Who am I? So it is a belief that we espouse. A belief that we espouse. And there's been a great deal of religious teachers in our world, but, and we can see about him, we, we have to understand that he is the one who rose from the dead. This belief is not static, however. It is active. 
and it's transformational in nature. It changes our outlook, our attitude, and our perspective on everything. It reorients us from a self-centered viewpoint to one that is completely God-centered. It transforms the way we behave toward others. It's the next point you need to write down, how we behave toward others. If it doesn't change how you behave toward others, then I really wonder if you truly believe. Because it is transformable, transformational in nature. Look at verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And that's interesting. It seems like that is reversed. We know that we love God, or we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. See, if you love God, he's saying that you will love people. That's why the Ten Commandments, remember, were divided into two. The first part of it was about your relationship with God. The second part of the Ten Commandments was about your relationship with other people. This shows the, hor- the, the vertical. This shows the horizontal. And you cannot, have, uh, this hor- you, say, you, cannot, you cannot have this vertical relationship without the horizontal. Because most of us will say, I love God, I just hate people. We're all good when it's just us and God. But when it comes to dealing with difficult people, those we consider our enemies... How do we love them? Right now, there's a lot of paranoia going on in the United States. And I'm, I, I experienced some paranoia of that even when I was getting on the plane. I flew through Paris. Okay, this is a week just right after the attack. I'm there when the Secretary of State in the United States says that there is a, uh, for Americans who are traveling, uh, that there is a security threat and you need to be on guard. Well, that didn't make me happy getting on the plane. Right before I get on the plane... Uh, they say, if you are here from Belgium, please come and see the, the desk. There were all these people that were there. They were getting screened. Then the next thing I know, there are multiple securities that are, I mean, security guards that are there. They are going and interviewing each individual passenger. Now, I could say, just shut it off. Let's not let, it, let's not let everybody, I mean, and there's this debate right now. Do we let people in? Do we let them not? Do we let them in? Do we let them not? The question is, is do you love those people? I mean, our fear sometimes is greater than our love. We're saying, well, but we're, we're afraid. It's because we don't know how to love. See, our love has to overcome our fear of what's going on around. And the thing is, the only real answer to all this is Jesus. And when we say we want to shut it off, it means that we really don't understand the power of what Jesus can do. I mean, really. Because we think we're just going to shut it off and end it. But God is giving us an opportunity of a lifetime right now. To share the gospel with people that have not yet heard it. And I, I understand there's fear. Rightly so. But God has never promised us a safe life. I was even reading this today. I was reading this today in Matthew chapter 10. And I was telling my wife where, where Jesus says, If you love your, your, your father, mother, sister, or brother, son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. He goes, let me tell you, the world hated me first. It's going to hate you. The problem is, is that many of us are trying to find this world as our comfort and our home. We want to be safe here. We want everything here. We want Jesus, and we want to have everything fine and in a rock, and just leave me alone, and everything's going to be fine. He's never promised us that. That is not of God. God calls us to something bigger and greater. This world is not our home. And I say that in full knowledge of my own children, that I want to keep safe and away from such danger. That I am, but God has called me to something more, not an insular faith. He's called me to go out, even at the risk of losing my own life. I mean, Jesus talks about this. He's being brought before the authorities, and he says, many will lose their life because of me. And he who seeks to lose his life will gain it. And then one who seeks to, to hide it, he's not going to gain it you, if you hold on to it. 
He has given you his son not for you to hold on to so you'll keep it hidden, but to let it out. That's what he's called us to. He has not promised us an easy life. He's called us to go. Even when it's not safe. He's never promised us a VeggieTale Christianity. It's not just how, and it's how we behave toward others. That's how we have to show. Can we love them? How do we love them? And how do we see, it says here, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God, but we also obey His commandments. That is another sign of it. Are you obeying His commands? I'm amazed at how fast and loose we play with God's Word anymore. We're, we obey as long as it is convenient. As soon as it becomes costly and difficult, we don't obey anymore. I'm seeing this in marriages where people are like, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, until death does us part. It's, wait, scratch that. As long as you continue to love me and I get my needs met. I was talking with the Briscoes. Now, again, these are people that uh, he is 85 years old. She is 80. He started his ministry, interestingly enough, during post-World War II, when after the Germans lost, that they had the Hitler Youth, that they were actually trying to reach and help, that uh, many of the British brought in these Hitler Youth into their homes, which many, it was like a force upon them, they weren't happy about it, but he was reaching out to these Hitler Youth and sharing Christ with them. And I was talking to them as a couple, and I said, in all your years, I mean, you've, you've had amazing ministry, I mean, you took a church of 400, transformed it into a church of 7,000 the largest church in all of Wisconsin. I mean, you travel all over the world. I mean, Jill didn't start in her, in her ministry until she was in her 40s, and she is now a two-million-mile flyer. This is a couple that are in, only in the United States eight weeks a year. They're going into countries all over the world at 85 and 80. Incredible ministry. And I was talking with Jill, and I asked her a question. I was like, well, you know, what are all the things that you, you've learned and talked about? And we started talking about marriage. And she goes, you know, Stuart and I have done a lot of marriage counseling over the years. And it, she goes, we have the same advice for every one of them. And I said, really? And I'm like, what? Like, ready to write it down. And she goes, grow up. And I was like, oh. <laughs> She's like, it's not a, she, she goes, we have these people that think it's all about them. They're so selfish. And she goes, it's not about getting all your needs met all the time. It's sacrificing oneself. That's what we're to do. Now, see, when we're, we're to obey his commandments in all things, which means, by the way, and I'm going to hit this one in our culture, whatever is pure, whatever is praiseworthy, what are you watching online or on TV? What are you watching? What are you putting in front of your face? Is it pure? Is it praiseworthy? And then we excuse it because you know why? We become addicted to it. We don't know how to survive without it. And so we find ways that it's like, it's not that bad. And we, the idea of shutting it off because we become addicted is terrifying. I mean, I was listening to another kid, and this kid goes, I don't know how my parents lived without the internet. You know, we survived. And you can too. You've got to learn to be a good steward. Are you picking up your phone right in the morning and just going right to the, what the world says? In social media, it says that, I mean, every 30 minutes, people are che- I mean, a person is checking their Facebook. Every 30 minutes. It's like we don't know how. We have to pull back. And it means following what the Word of God says, being God-centered, not so self-centered. How are we behaving toward others? Are we growing in holiness? I mean, I mean are we obeying His commands? Are we, are we fighting sin? Do we seek to grow in His Word? Are you fighting your flesh? Are you finding excuses to indulge it? 
Are you drowning your sorrows in food, drink, drugs, sex, entertainment, or power? I mean, are you obeying your commands, even, at, I mean, God's commands at work? Are you a good worker? Do you, lie, do you lie to your boss? Are you cheating your boss? Are you a good student? Are you cheating on your studies? Do you lie? Are you stealing? Are you obeying God's commands? Are you seeking to be holy? Or do you want to grow in holiness? Are you seeking to become more like Jesus? Are you pursuing righteousness? Are you pursuing holiness? Do you seek to help others? These are all the commands are pointing us to these things. See, we have to remember that we are in a battle, but it's one that we who are true Christians will overcome. See, this amazing truth can also be seen through the battle we overcome. We've talked about the birth we experience, the belief we espouse, how we behave toward others, but there is a battle that we will overcome. Look at verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? See, if you're a child of God, God promises you that you will overcome the world. This is not something in the past. In Greek, it's in the present active or something in the future. It's not a future. It is something, or, uh, it is something that if you have been born of God, born again, born from above, then you can and will overcome the world. There is nothing that can stop you. There's no demon. There's no angel. There's no obstacle, no government, no disease. Nothing that can separate us from the love that we have in Christ Jesus. Remember Jesus' words in John 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The world is not our home. We are strangers and aliens here. But why do we behave and live as if this world were? Why do we try and get so comfortable in a land that is not where we belong? See, we fail to remember that we're not fighting for a position of, for, for a position of victory, but from a position of victory. See, before we came to know Jesus, we were enslaved to our flesh and the world system around us. We're trying to break free, but we couldn't. We were enslaved, but Jesus came and was able to break away. He cut the chains. He achieved victory. He was the first, and it's through him that we can now have the victory. Now, it's interesting. I was talking with uh, T.V. Thomas. I mentioned he was evangelist. Chandler knows him really well. And uh, this is a pretty man with amazing ministry. He's interacted with the who's who of not just in Christendom within our world. I mean, you, can't, you don't know too many people that have interacted with the Queen of England or was babysat with Prince Charles. Okay, and he knew John Stott and Francis Schaeffer, and Billy Graham would call him frequently at least once a month, and they would talk about different things. So this is a man who's been around for a very long time. And we we're talking about Christian and Christians in North America, and he says, the problem that we have today is that Christians have forgotten who they are. We have, in essence, spiritual amnesia. We've been so bombarded with the things of this world and entertainments, and it's not, again, the, the attacks. It's the gifts that take us away from the giver. See, we're waiting for Satan to show up with horns and a pitchfork, when the reality is he's just as active through entertainment and through the good blessings that we have because it distracts us from our pure devotion to Christ. So he was saying that we need to remember who we are in Christ Jesus. And he said, what I, what I do is I have this, this list of statements from Scripture that, that show our identity. And I have people paste it in their Bibles. And I have them read it once a day, just to remind themselves, because we need reminding. And I'm going to share this list with you. I mean, if, we, if uh, it, it bears out, we can have it printed for you, and you can tape it in your Bible. I recommend it. But here's the list. He says, who am I? This is what the Scripture says. 
that you are the salt of the earth. God has made you to be salt of the earth, to keep it, to preserve it, and also to, to uh, give it flavor. Not only that, here's the next one. I am the light of the world. He is the light of the world, but he's made us lights too. You are light. You individually are light. Not just your parents, not just your church. You individually. God has placed you in your position, at your workplace, at your school, to be a light in your home, in your neighborhood. That's what he's positioned and called you to do and be. You are a child of God. Child of God. You're not the child of the President of the United States. You're a child of the Heavenly King. You are a child of God. You are part of the true vine, a channel of Christ's life. You are the a branch. He's the vine. You are the branch, and His life is flowing in you. Not only that, you are a Christ's friend. You are Christ's friend. You call Him brother, but you're also His friend. He's also your Lord, but He would call you friend, that He would talk to you. And not only that, you were chosen and appointed by Christ to bear his fruit. He chose you to bear fruit. Every single person who bears the name of Jesus Christ is to bear fruit, without exception. It's not for those who went to seminary or Bible college or the super spiritual. It is for the everyday Christian to bear fruit. You are a slave of righteousness, meaning you're to do good, to live righteously. Not only that, you're enslaved to God. He, He owns you. And not in a, the slavery that we would think in the ancient world, but in a wonderful way. He's paid the price for you and loves you so much. That you are a son of God. God is spiritually your father. You can even call him father. That you can address him, that type of intimacy. That's why Jesus, when he called God father, he called him Abba. It was, a very, it was the, the term of endearment, closeness of intimacy. Not a formal father, but like dad. There's a closeness and an intimacy that God allows us to have. Even though he is so holy and so righteous and so far away from us, he invites us to come near, not in any righteousness of our own, for we have none, but entirely through Jesus Christ that we are accepted. You're a joint heir with Christ, sharing his inheritance with him. You are rich. He has given you all of these things in Christ. You are a joint heir with Christ. Not only that, but you are a temple, the dwelling place of God. We talk about the Old Testament temple where the Shekinah glory would fill, but there is no more Old Testament temple. Matter of fact, in the New Testament, it says that we are temples, that God's Spirit now dwells in us, not in these earthly structures, but in you. This building is not holy because of the bricks and the mortar. It's because of the people that are in it that contain the Spirit of God. God's Spirit is in you. We need to remember that truth. Not only that, We are united to the Lord and one in spirit with Him. There's an intimacy that comes. We are one people. I am a member of Christ's body, that we are part of this body of believers. We all have different parts and different functions, but we all come together for one purpose, and and that's being a part of Him, to glorify His name. You are a new creation. You are not who you were. You're a new creation. For those that, that have a past, and many in this room do, some have been raised in Christian homes, and, and God spared you from having that, that sinful past. For, for those who are new creations in Christ, the devil will try to bring up your past and throw it in your face. But you just have to remind them, that person is dead. You are a new creation. That person was crucified with Christ. That person no longer lives. But this new person lives by faith in the Son of God. You are a new creation. You have new desires, new attitudes, new outlooks. You're totally brand new. 
And Satan can't throw your past at you anymore because Jesus took it upon himself and paid the price for it. He stood guilty in your place. You are reconciled to God and now are a minister of reconciliation, that you're to be pleading with other people to be reconciled to God. It is not for the super spiritual. It is for each individual Christian who bears the name of Christ to plead with other people to be reconciled unto God. Not forcing. It cannot be by force. It's through love and sacrificing oneself. You are a son of God and you are one in Christ. You can be called God's son or daughter and one in Christ. This is a pretty, you're an heir of God since you are a son of God. And they continue on just going through the list. You are a saint, surprisingly. You are a saint. Chuck, you are a saint. It's hard to believe that. But according to the word of God, you're a saint, and I'm a saint. And you're not, not a saint that we pray to that you hear about, sometimes within Catholicism. That's not what the scripture talks about, is that we are now in the presence of God. God sees us as saints. Pretty amazing. You are God's workmanship. The word there in Greek, by the way, for workmanship is poema. You are God's poem to be read by the world. And he's displaying his grace upon your life, born anew in Christ to do his work. You are a fellow citizen with the rest of God's family. You are a prisoner of Christ, meaning that he has purchased you and he loves you. You are righteous and holy. This is what you are in the sight of God. You are a citizen of heaven, seated in heaven right now. This is pretty incredible. I'm hidden with Christ and God. You are an expression of the life of Christ because he himself is your life. You were chosen of God, holy and dearly loved. You are a son of light and not of darkness. You're not to live in darkness any longer. You are a holy partaker of a heavenly calling. You are a partaker of Christ. You now share in his life. You are one of God's living stones being built up in Christ as a spiritual house. See, this list keeps going on and on. I'm a member of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. I'm an alien and stranger to this world in which I temporarily live. I'm an enemy of the devil. I am a child of God and will resemble Christ when he returns. I am born of God and, and the evil one, the devil, can, and the, the evil one, excuse me, the devil cannot touch me. I am not the great I am, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Meaning that God, God has transformed you and made you into his child. So we need to remember these truths because they are, when the times get tough, and when things start seem to become unraveling, we have to go back to the truths of what God has said within his word because these are immovable. See, we need to remember that. We need to remember that. But that's not all. Let's get back to our text. So we've talked about this amazing truth, but now I want to look at this awesome testimony. This awesome testimony. See, the Bible gives us three things that testify that Jesus is who he said he was, and, and not just externally and internally. Look at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood. This is a very hard verse. One that we look at and you go, what does this mean? Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, the first thing that testifies is the water. And most scholars believe that this is referring to Jesus' baptism, which was an act of significant identification. 
It was showing him that he was testifying to the world. When God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. This is, this is my son. And it's an act before the world where he is making his statement that he is identifying with sinful man. That he's coming alongside each one of us. Now what does baptism symbolize? It symbolizes our sins being washed away, but it's also an act of identification of saying, I'm going to be a partner with. I'm identifying. That's why Jesus said to John the Baptist when he came to him, let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. Because John said to him, why is it that you come to be baptized by me? I'm not worthy to baptize you. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I'm coming to identify with sinful man who does have sin to be washed away from, but I am coming to identify with him to take his sins upon myself. That's what I am coming to do. And it's, it's a statement. It's an act of significant identification that he is, he is identifying with us. And it's a testimony to the world that God is saying, I am coming to put my lot with my creation. We don't understand why. He didn't need to. I mean, he didn't have to. No one compelled him to. But he did it because of his love for us, his love for you. So it's an act of significant identification. But that's not all. He says, the water and the blood. And this is referring to his crucifixion. It's referring to an act of sacrificial proclamation. Sacrificial proclamation. See, he died for you on the cross. His death showed that he was willing to sacrifice himself so that you might be saved. That he on the cross was, was crucifying the world unto himself. That he was taking all of your sins, every single sin you have ever done, upon himself in one one glorious, wonderful, awful, awe-inspiring moment that he became sin in that moment. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that you could become the righteousness of God. Do you realize that? God made him who knew no sin to be sin. He became your sin. He became my sin at that moment in time. It's an act of sacrificial proclamation. And it was showing, and it's through that blood that we are victorious. See, Jesus came to set us free, and by his death on the cross and by his blood, we de- he defeated the devil and his demons. And his blood was shed for us, according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. He purchased us, and by his blood God ransomed people for himself from every tribe and every language and every people and nation. And it's by his, the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, that we conquer evil. And it was by his baptism and his death that we have an amazing testimony to who God is and that what he has done. So remember, baptism is extremely important. It's so important, so, so much so, that in the book of Mark, that he doesn't begin the book of Mark with the birth of Christ. Matthew begins with the birth of Christ. Luke begins with the birth of Christ. But Mark doesn't. It begins with his baptism. It's showing how, how important that was in Mark's mind. His birth didn't mean as much. In that regard, it was that act of baptism that showed who he is in reality to the world. So it's an act of sacrificial proclamation. It's a testimony to the world that God has come to save us. But that's not all. See, there are three, the water, the blood, and the spirit. And this amazing testimony is also rooted in the spirit's internal confirmation. The spirit's internal confirmation. This is God's spirit bears with our spirit that we are children of God. See, I'm reminded, and I've shared this story before, Tim Keller, who was a pastor of Redeemer uh, Church in New York, he wrote this book called The Reason for God. Great book. I recommend you to read it. Uh, Became a New York Times bestseller. And he is interacting with atheists quite often, and he actually puts himself in a room with atheists. And he allows them to ask any question, and then he will answer and respond. 
And he doesn't play around. He's not trying to hide anything. It's just him responding to these questions. And one woman asked the question, could I convince you that Christianity is not true? And what would you say? Because if you say no, right off the board, they're like, then what's the point of talking any longer? You're not open to reason. And if you, so if you say that, if you say yes, it's like, am I doubting God? So he actually divides it. He's genius. He goes, could you in this room intellectually convince me that the arguments for Christianity are not true? Yes, you're a bunch of smart people. He goes, could you convince me of that? Yeah. But there's a different side of me. There's an experiential side of me that has experienced God. And that part, you're going to have a very hard time convincing me is not real and not true. Genius. But he's saying there, he's saying that I'm keeping the dialogue open, that I'm open to reason and talking to you. But there is something that you cannot argue, something that I've experienced internally because God's spirit has spoken to my spirit, that I am a child of God, and that you're going to have a very hard time convincing me of. Because it's the spirit's internal witness to us that we are God's children. And he kept that dialogue open with them and was able to talk more about Jesus. But see, that's an awesome testimony. It's an act of significant identification, sacrificial proclamation, and then there's the Spirit's internal testimony that we are children of God. Let me ask you this question. Do you have that internal testimony in you? Do you have that knowledge that you are God's child? Have you truly trusted in Jesus Do you have that Spirit's internal confirmation? See, while our passage contains an amazing truth and an awesome testimony, it also contains a warning of an awful tragedy. An awful tragedy. See, up to this point, John has encouraged us. But he ends our passage for today with the possibility of some who won't live for Jesus, who will not follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 10, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. He's talking about that Spirit's internal witness. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life that is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. See, the tragedy has three parts. The first part of the tragedy involves us rejecting Jesus as Lord. Rejecting Jesus as Lord. He says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe has made him a liar. So he's saying, has a testimony in him, believes, meaning that you are living. There is a confirmation in your spirit that God is who he says he is. And you live for him as such that you are without excuse. You know that he is the Lord of life. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. See, there's, there's this understanding, there's this, this uh, confirmation that we are doing what God has called us to do and be. See, Romans chapter 1 says this, and it's pretty amazing. Romans chapter 1, that's in uh, page 939. But he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. He's saying that there is an internal, there is a witness in the world that shows that God is real, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it shown to has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of, about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. He's saying there that if you believe in God, that you will live for Him as Lord. And God is saying there is a testimony and witness, even in nature itself, that God is who He said He is. We can't reject him as Lord. Some people say, well, I don't reject him as Lord. I believe. But if your life doesn't reflect it, then you are rejecting. If you're continually going out and engaging in all these sins and you're not putting that sinful nature to death, you are showing that you do not really believe that he is who he said he is. Now, it's not to say that we're not going to have struggles, but it's to say the trajectory of our life needs to be moving toward Christ-likeness. We need to make sure that we're not rejecting him as Lord. Now, secondly, if we do reject him, we are calling God a liar. We are rejecting his testimony that Jesus is the Christ. That witness that we know that is there, that we can even see in nature itself. Then we are rejecting him and we are saying that God is a liar. Now, there are certain people that, that, I mean, you don't call liars. God is one. You don't call God a liar. And God is saying that I've given a testimony within my word about who Jesus is. And you're saying, I'm going to either submit to him as Lord, or if you don't, then you're saying that God is a liar and he's, Jesus is really not the Christ. And that means if you reject Jesus as Lord, you're not only calling God a liar, you are forfeiting eternal life. You are forfeiting eternal life. See, eternal life is not an endless cycle of punishment and reincarnation, but an endless enjoyment of God. It is experiencing the fullest joys and pleasures that the pleasures of this life are just a foretaste. As Psalm 16, 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. As we close this message time, I, I want to share that last verse again. Why does he write this? He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know? Do you know? We often don't ask this question, but if, <laughs> if you were to die today, do you know where you're going? This world is not guaranteed. Do you know that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that your sins are forgiven, that you have peace and purpose with God? Do you know this? Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know what God has done for you? Do you know how much he loves you? Who do you say he is? These are the questions that he has before each one of us. Because if we do believe, does your life reflect that? Does our life reflect that? That's what we have to ask ourselves. These are the signs of salvation that are there, that there is this, this uh, pretty amazing truth and this awesome testimony, but then you have this awful tragedy. I mean, we have to see these signs in our life, that Jesus is the Lord of our life, that we truly believe in who he is and what he has done for each one of us. Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? That he paid the price for you? If so, then you have a life in him, and now you are to be joyous. And remember this truth. Don't suffer the, the identity crisis. Let's reflect back and remember that truth of who he is so that God might might receive great glory through our life, that we might increase in joy, knowing that we are becoming and are what he has made us to be and do.